So we are in Genesis 4. We've been all spring in Genesis 1 through 3, the foundation stone of the scriptures. I contend that every, the whole oak tree of God's written revelation and of space-time history um, comes out of the first three seemingly simple chapters, comes out of this acorn of Genesis 1 through 3. And so we're just spending one week in the next chapter, Genesis 4, to talk about we've seen the fall, we've seen God make everything perfect, Genesis 3 man and woman cut themselves off from God and for a relationship with him by disobeying him. The key to life is obeying his word, trusting him. They sever that. Genesis 4 shows us quickly the speed with which sin ravages the person and the environment and indeed the cosmos in which the person resides. Um, it's, it's amazing. So what's wrong with the world? It's the age-old question. Some say it's too much religion. Some say it's too little. Um, some blame one or more of our ills on the various isms. We, we, could, we could spend all day talking about the isms from too much capitalism. The problem is too much socialism. Or maybe it's not enough of one or the other. Um, maybe it's racism. Maybe it's sexism. Um, but uh, we, Genesis 4 has a different answer. Genesis 4 says it's not any of those isms. Um, it's something much deeper. It's something much more pervasive. Um, about a little over 100 years ago, um, we, the, the, the West found itself in a situation that we, I feel like, are in today. They had been about 50 year, years without a major war. We've been about the same. Um, we are in a very comfortable, we are in a somewhat comfortable, let me say that, very affluent position in the West and I think we can be tempted to think that we are on our way to overcoming evils within and without, to creating a perfect society, whether it's through science or through craft. The, modern, the, modern, the modernist sort of answer was, was science, was engineering, was, was building, was uh, sort of optimizing in a scientific, post-enlightened fashion, the perfect man and woman, the perfect society. Today, it's more craft. It's kinda, the dial's kind of clicked to the perfect coffee the perfect espresso, the perfect uh, bottle of water, um, the perfect organic food, the perfect craft beer, um, no walls, uh, whether around the country or in the classroom, that's not a political comment, uh, no genders, just a free, clean embrace of the all, except for, except for um, um, all, any of those who have any moral absolutes. But um, it's, it's one, one of them, the modernist, is a sort of caricature of the right, of the rights position, the other that I just stated, the perfect craft, is kind of a caricature of the, of the less position. Um, but those, a little bit over 100 years ago in the West, found themselves in a similar place where they felt like they were on the edge of figuring things out, and they'd had peace for a while, and they were about to figure it out. Two world wars and 180 million dead um, after those two world wars had passed, and after many other tyrants had killed millions and millions of people, um, disabused the West of those, of those illusions and help say goodbye to all that. But I feel like we're in a very similar place because what? We have historical amnesia. Um, more people, people were killed by violent means in the 20th century than in all the previous centuries combined, roughly 180 million. In our time, the ratio of civilian to military deaths has been exactly reversed from one to nine to nine to one. Pope John Paul II has rightly called ours the culture of death, and yet because it's been a while since we've had a major war, other than the professional soldiers that, that, that go over and fight you know, foreign wars that don't affect us very, very much, most of us 
um, we can be in a position that's very similar. Um, and so the, the Bible doesn't, doesn't hook the problem that's in us that spreads out from us into any of these surface level, but real isms or problems. It goes deeper. This 3,400 year old ancient text takes us somewhere else completely. So the first thing I wanna, I wanna just spend a few minutes on is the power of sin. Okay, the power of sin. Just to kind of uh, deal with and kind of move aside some, some issues that might be white noise for you if I don't touch on them. What's the deal with Cain and Abel? So here we have Adam and Eve have sinned. They've not only sinned against God, but because all, all creation was put under their care, everything that was under their care, all creation has cracked with the crack that now uh, divides them down the middle, okay? And so in chapter four, we have Cain and Abel, who are their two sons. And we see what Nathaniel read, how Cain murders Abel. Um, but Abel brings a sacrifice. Cain brings a sacrifice of what? Yeah, produce, grain, something he's, he's worked the ground and he's harvested, he's labored for. Abel brings, um, what, is, what does Abel bring? He brings a sheep from the flock, okay? Now, sometimes you can hear a whole sermon on sort of why is God displeased with Cain's offering and not, and not with Abel's. I'm not gonna spend, that's not the point of this sermon, but I did just kind of want to address it quickly so we can move on. I think one of the reasons might be we've been given evidence earlier in chapter three of the fact that blood is required. The death of something innocent is required for the guilty to go free and to be in God's presence. God covers Adam and Eve with a skin. Presumably he's killed an innocent animal so they can be so they can continue to go on and be covered from their shame, as it were, and in God's presence. Um, so that has pr- probably been passed down. Also, um, Abel offers something. You, can't, you, can't, you can take care of animals, but you can't work an animal into existence. An animal is its own life, okay? It's, an, it's offering something else up that doesn't deserve to die so that you can live. So it doesn't come from the sweat of his brow. What Cain offers up comes from his tilling of the soil, from his effort, he offers up his effort and his sweat and toil and his, in a sense, cleaning himself up to God, okay? Now, that's all I'm gonna say about that. So there's a lot in there as to why and, and other stuff that I haven't touched on and who knows, maybe I'm dead wrong. But as to why, for whatever reason, God won't accept Cain's offering. He won't accept our coming to him and trying to clean ourselves up. What he accepts is something innocent that must die in our place. Blood must be shed. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing that's briefer is, if you'll notice, after Cain murders his brother, what does God do? Does God kill him? I mean, he deserves to die. What happens? He has mercy on him. And what does he do? He does the same thing that he did with Adam and Eve. He comes to him with a question. Where is your brother? And he even before that counsels him not to do what he is tempted to do, right? Um, so he holds out grace. But what does Cain do? He slaps God's hand away. You ever done that? I know I have. If you look at verse seven, um, there's language here describing where God is counseling Cain. He's entreating him, would be the word, not to do what Cain doesn't have to do. He's not fated to do. But he says that, he says that sin is what? Crouching at your door. The word there, it means crouching. It means lurking. But it, I want you to think of like a spotted jaguar in a tree on a tree branch. That's the image. It's the image of a power that has desire. He says it's desire. The word can mean longing. 
It is longing to pounce on you, to spring on you, to sink its teeth right into your neck and to eat you alive. God is telling Cain that sin isn't something he can manage. It is, it is, it is a power outside of you that has also invaded you, a resident evil, and it won't stop until you're dead. Um, it's an adversary, and it is connected. Our sin is connected to a real uh, maleficent power, a malevolent power, the devil, the enemy, whom we've seen a bit of in Genesis 3. Um, there was a jogger, some of you have heard of, of this, that was recently um, jogging, surprise, um, a youngish man, I think, and he was, uh, he was tracked by, he was being tracked by a mountain lion, which apparently is one of two creatures uh, in the wild that, well, they've been known to track humans. So the other is, a, anyone know the other one? Polar bear, bonus points. Um, yeah, they look cute and cuddly, don't even think about it. Um, polar bears and, and, um, and mountain lions, so this mountain lion is a young mountain lion, thank God, but it, it attacked this jogger, and he... He, he had the better, he had the upper hand. He actually killed, can you imagine? He killed this thing with his bare hands. I think he got really shredded in the process. Um, and uh, he choked it out. But this is, this is the picture of what God is saying. Sin is waiting, He's, it's crouching, it's lurking at your door. It's desire, it's longing is to consume you, crunch your bones, sink its fangs into your neck and destroy you. Um, just like, just like this mountain lion was seeking to do. Um, have you, it, it is coiled. We killed a snake this weekend on a camping trip. It was a copperhead, I think. And it, we were above it. It was in a creek bed. And our leader had a long staff, like eight feet long. And he was holding it. All the boys were looking. It was a father-son trip. All the boys were looking down at it. And it was going like this. Just white mouth, fangs ready to bite. And he just plunged his uh, staff after the boys had gotten a look right down onto its head. Um, sorry, PETA people, um, but we didn't want our boys getting, getting bitten. But it's coiled, ready to strike. Um, I, I've had arguments with Robin many times that um, feel like this. It feels like there's a power that's described here um, going on within and without. I tell myself, it's like, we argue, and then I go away, or there's something that I feel like we could argue about, and, and, and I'm about to engage in conversation, and I'm kind of coaching myself on the other side of the door, and I'm like, don't do this, don't say that, because by now, 13 years of marriage, I can press her buttons perfectly, and she can press mine. Um, so if we want to fight, we're going to fight. Um, and I'm telling my, I'm coaching myself, right? But then I go in, it's like when I go in and we see each other face to face, it's like Oftentimes, there's this power that almost overwhelms me, and I'm saying, hey, things that I told myself not to say, almost as it were against my will, but I'm the one doing it, and I'm responsible. Oftentimes, too, I can be spewing venom on her, and in the middle of that, I'm thinking, why am I doing this? But it's like I can't stop it. It's like I can't stop it. It's like something takes over. It's like there's a power outside of me crouching, waiting to take over and crunch me up and crunch her up. Because it doesn't just affect me, does it? It affects those around me, and it affects the world, the environment around me. Um, the Bible says that we are slaves to sin, and yes, to Satan. That we are dead, it makes no mistake, it says we are dead in our sins and law-breaking because of our sin. We are held captive by a power, by a resident evil, that we uh, can't master or even fully resist. 
Of course, the Lord of the Rings uh, agrees with this understanding, no surprise, and, 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 uh, and takes us somewhere else that the Bible takes us as well. The Lord of the Rings by Tolkien, um, it shows us that sin is a power. It's more complex than our mere captivity under the dominion of sin, our situation, our human situation, something we see here in Genesis 4. We hate our sin. Here's what this passage I'm going to read you shows. We hate our sin, but we love it. See, that's a twist. But we love it. We're captive to the power of sin, but we also choose it. Commenting on the saga, Fleming, Fleming Rutledge says, she writes, quote, turning to the conversation between Gandalf the wizard and Frodo the hobbit as it continues in the early part of the book called The Shadow of the Past. We see that the motif of the bound will intensifies. Frodo asks, quote, if Gollum hate, he's asking Gandalf this, if Gollum hated the ring, why didn't he get rid of it? The ring is this power that enslaves, but it's also enticing. And Gandalf replied, he hated it and loved it. He could not get rid of it. He had no will left in the matter. It was not Gollum Frodo, but the ring itself that decided things. Sin is a power that begins to eat away like an acid at our souls and won't stop unless it's either cut out. It won't stop if it's not cut out until it completely devours us. It's like an onion. We just, you peel us, it peels us until there's nothing left. And that's what hell is. There, hell is more than that. Hell is the just wrath of God poured out against our sin and evil because he's just and he can't countenance sin. But it's also our eternal undoing and becoming the sins that we've been feeding on. And it just disintegrates us forever, okay? Paul bewails this state of affairs in Romans 7. He says this, he says, I do not do what I want to do. And the fact that Paul, y'all, said this is so encouraging. I do not do what I want to do, just like me and Robin. Have you ever been there? I know you have. And I do what I do not want to do. We have all been there. Maybe, maybe this weekend we were there, maybe last night. Um, maybe this past week, month, or year, certainly. Sin is not something we can manage. You don't, you don't manage a rattlesnake. You don't, you don't feed a rattlesnake, and yet we do. We try. Rutledge, again, before moving to point two, um, she says, Tolkien, and I would add Genesis 4, our text here, is showing us, J.R. Tolkien's the author, he's showing us that there is far more to evil than the accumulation of various human mistakes, foibles. This is something the, earth, the world's gonna say. It's, hey, you made a mistake. Okay, a mistake is, is, is running over a mailbox. A mistake isn't even necessarily bad. You can learn from a mistake. The, Genesis 4 here shows us sin is something much more sinister that we can't, that we can't manage, okay? Um, it's, 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 um, it's more than the mere accumulation of human mistakes, foibles, and failures. The same can be said of sin, and indeed, St. Paul says just that over and over. Sin is not just a little sin here and a bigger sin there. It's a power. It's in league with death, and such powers have lives of their own. So that's sin is, is power, the power of sin. Let's look at the pervasiveness, point two, of sin. This is something that I actually didn't have Nathaniel read for the sake of time, but I'm just gonna touch on it. The pervasiveness of sin, really after, starting in verse 17 and following, we see this. But if you look at, if you trace the sin of Adam and Eve, the sin of Adam to the sin of Cain, and then to the sin of Lamech, who is in the last part of the chapter. We didn't read it, but I'll fill you in. Um, Lamech is one of Cain's uh, descendants, okay? Adam is passive. He's passive. He, he, does, um, he does not do what he should have done. He should have stepped in when the serpent was whispering lies 
to Eve and he should have stepped in with the word of God and protected her and spoken the word of God to the serpent and cut things off. But he also doesn't, um, he also does what he ought not do. He takes the fruit in, in a counter um, to God's word and he eats, okay? So he's passive and then afterwards, what does he do? He hides, he deflects. So it's terrible and he starts to disintegrate. But by chapter four, what do you see? How has sin begun to pervade and progress? Look at Cain, his son. Look at what Cain does. Cain doesn't just take fruit and eat and, obey, and disobey God in that way and then begin to deflect. He murders his brother in cold, calculated blood. It's not, a heat of, not the heat of passion. He's already been counseled by God. It is murder in the first degree, okay? What does he do? Is he ashamed? Does he hide after that? Like Adam? No, look at how it's progressed. He backtalks God. God says, where is Abel? What does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? He's talking back to God. You see how sin progresses, this sophisticated yet seemingly simple picture that Genesis 4 gives us of what sin does. It won't stop like the jaguar, like the snake, like poison until we're done. Okay, he's impudent. He talks back to God. Um, Rather than bewailing, excuse me, then he bewails his punishment rather than taking it on the chin as something that he deserves, which he certainly does. But still, because he starts whining about it after God doesn't kill him, but says, here's gonna be your punishment, right? The earth's not gonna give its yield to you and I'm gonna banish you. He just starts whining. Are you serious? You just killed your brother, bro. God should drive a stake through your head. God is gracious, just like he's gracious to Adam and Eve, just like he's gracious to us. He's gracious. He puts a mark on Cain. Who knows what that mark is? Maybe he made him a giant. Maybe that's where the giants come from. No one's gonna touch you. Whoa, you're nine feet tall. I don't know. That's another bit of white noise that (laughs) speculate all you want. No idea. Um, if you look at verse 12 with me, the verbs here, they're verbs in the Hebrew, they're, they're uh, nouns in the, in the English translations, typically. Um, the verbs here describing Cain are very interesting. <coughs> His wandering, it says you're gonna be a wanderer, God's gonna cast him away, is almost a staggering. It can mean tottering here and there like he's drunk. He's aimless. He's without, he's without root, he's without anchor. He's confused. The word fugitive it, it means that you're homeless. It means two things. You're both homeless. You have no home. You have no place to put up your feet, no hearth to come to, no pole star. But it also means that you're, um, you're running from something, like something behind you. Do you have that sense? That sense pervades so much of my life that there's a reason that we so resonate with the idea of home, of a place to hang our hat and find security and to be safe in, but we can never quite, it's always like, I mentioned this a lot, but it's always like that hill when you're climbing a big 14,000 foot peak. Are we there yet? Yep, it's the next hill. No, it's not. It's never the next hill. It's always, it's the carrot and the stick, man. It's always just out of reach. Home. We're made for home, but we can't grab hold of it here in this earth. And we all also always feel like we're being dogs. Something is on our trail. Something's tracking us. We do, and, and, and this text shows us that. It shows us that Cain feels that way. The sense of, hey, here it is, unbelonging. We're pilgrims, even we who are in the Lord. We're pilgrims in this, on this broken planet, and our name Sojourn touches on that. It touches on more than that, but a sojourner is a pilgrim, a wanderer, but all who wander are not lost, right? So also in verses 17 through 22, we see the spread of this, not just from Adam to Cain, but through civilization. 
Um, Cain is banished further east, away from God's presence, but he leaves, and what does he do? Does he just like make a lean-to and, and, and drag a woman around by the hair and uh, hang out in caves and carry a club like we would be taught in Darwinian histories? No. What, what does he do and what do his descendants do? They start building cities, culture, um, music, and industry immediately. They are, they are made in God's image. History is more, more than going from a prebiotic slime to, uh, to perfection. That's a Darwinist view of history, of human progress and of how we can, do, we can pull ourselves up. The, the biblical view of history is the opposite. We started here in God's image, Imago Dei, perfect, sinless, with him, with so much capacity to rightly administer all things in creation, and we fell. With precipitous speed, the celerity, the speed with which the power of sin moves throughout Cain and his progeny, and civilization itself is massive, massive, and we see that here, but we also see that it spreads throughout all this stuff. So um, more than that even, in the next chapter, we see the drum roll of death, and sin causes death. You die because you're a sinner, tainted by sin. I as well. Uh, we see the drum roll of death. If you read Genesis 5, the next chapter, what, what is it? What's Genesis 5? It's a drum roll of from Adam onward and his progeny all the way to Noah. Of, of Adam had this person and this person had this person. And every, at the end of every single one, it says, and he died. There's life and then there's death. And he died and he died. And it's just drumbeat, boom, boom. Boom, boom, death, death, death. We're used to seeing that. We, we, we know that we all die, okay? Um, but, um, and we read the obituaries. We have them in our, in our newspapers. But here, this death, this drumbeat of death over and over again in Genesis 5 is making a theological point. It's because of sin and rebellion, and it's taking over. And yet, God gives, at the end of that chapter, he gives us Noah. He gives us a way out, okay? Um, but sin is like cancer. It pervades, it spreads, it metastasizes, and ultimately it kills us here and in eternity unless it's cut out and dealt with, right? Um, no amount of science, no amount of self-help, no amount of craft coffee, okay, or fair trade, as good as those things can be, is, is going to be able to stop this drum roll. None of these things. It's like cancer. Um, one of my, not favorite movies, that's the wrong way to put it, but I feel like the movie that I've seen that, that expresses the truth of the pervasiveness of sin and how it metastasizes and goes out of control wildly and we can't manage it is the movie Fargo. Have you seen it? It's a Coen Brothers film and it's in short just about a man who um, needs some money. He's a used car salesman and he, he arranges with two uh, B, B-grade criminals to, for them to ca- uh, kidnap his wife uh, and, then, and then hold her for ransom so that his rich father-in-law will pay. And he, he, he um, manages the whole deal. But it's something that se- that's seemingly kind of innocuous at first. He wants to get his wife back. He wants to kind of em- embezzle some money from his father-in-law. But that's it. But what happens is it goes from this arrangement with these B-grade criminals to, in the end, multiple murders, murder of his wife, murder of a cop, death of his father-in-law, and at the end, um, it ends with basically one of the killers shoving a, a femur through a, a, a tree, a, 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 a tree chipper. And so it's just like, it's gone insane. There's, there's blood everywhere. It's terrible. 
and he's trying to crawl through this window, running from the police. He's a murderer now. He's an accomplice to murder. And what we, it's, a, it's a really powerful picture of how sin starts small, and we think we can manage it, um, but we can't. We can't. Um, we had a friend who died of ALS. He was my father's friend from um, a Blue Gehrig's disease from the Naval Academy when I was up in, when Robin and I were up in seminary. And you know how his Lou Gehrig's disease started, the manifestation of it? I remember this on the walkway coming to our house one day. It started, he was paragon of health, played tennis, uh, wonderful culinary chef, uh, managed companies, went to the Naval Academy, was on nuclear submarines with my dad. But it started with a lisp, just a slight lisp in his speech. Ended up, he almost died in my arms, couldn't, he had no motor control. Ended up just completely helpless, dying. Um, that's what sin is like. That's what sin is like. Um, so it starts with a few days working late at the office. Nope, that's no, that's no problem. But then it becomes going to work early, staying at work late. Somehow the days turn into to weeks, the weeks turn into months. A few years go by, and without realizing it, you look up and realize um, you are a slave to work. You are a slave to money. You are a slave to the praise of men. Your family's in shambles, uh, and your wife's at the door, or maybe she's already left. Okay, It starts small. Am I saying don't work late a few days? I'm not saying that. I am saying it starts small, okay? And this text is a wake-up. It's an alarm. It's a wake-up bell for us. Um, <coughs> In the case of one of, our, one of our friends, it was a compliment that was paid to her by kind of an acquaintance about her dress or something. Ended up in a multi-year affair. It started small, um, but it will devour you. It will devour you. Um, what was it for you? What is it for you? Maybe it's a grumble or a tasty bit of gossip seemingly innocuous enough, or perhaps a small untruth, not gonna hurt anyone, or a glance at someone who's not your spouse. Maybe it's just that one unconfessed sin. No one needs to know, and it won't lead anywhere. Well, that's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. But he knows what he knew and what he was about in Genesis 4 and what he's still about, which is that sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. It wants to devour you, body and soul. Um, that word that we see in Genesis 4-7, desire, it's desire is for you. It's the same word that we see in Genesis 3-16 where God says that because of Eve's disobedience, her desire will be for her husband or, or contrary to her husband. Um, it also says, um, and, and uh, in, in, in Cain's instance, uh, so it's desire is for you, but you must what? Rule over it. You must rule over it. That same verb is there, um, your desire will be for your husband or contrary to him, uh, and he will what? Rule over you. So what is the message here? The message is, this isn't just an isolated thing with Cain. He's not just a bad boy. This is something that's come from his parents, that is inherited, that is taking over, and it's the same with us. Sin isn't just something we do, it's our nature. We, all mankind, Ephesians 2, 3 tells us, are by nature, get this, children of wrath, dead in our sins and trespasses, okay? That's how we're born, um, and it's what we grow into. Cain could not hide his sin. Abel's blood cried to God from the ground. We can't hide our sin. God knows. God sees. Just this morning in our equipping class, we talked about how God says, I see 
man sees the outward appearance, we can fool a lot of people. What does God see? He sees the heart. Not your beating heart, the core of who you are, the very, who you really are, the very inside, all the way down. Does the fact that we're by nature children of wrath absolve us from guilt? Not at all. It means that sin isn't just our behavior, it's our constitution. It means, here's the thing, that we can't escape this condition on our own, nor can our culture. We need another constitution. We need a rescuer. We need a representative who will do what we can't do and take the burden of our sin, our own constitution, into himself and pay for it. And that's exactly what God gives us in the person of Christ. So let's move on to the last point, the sin destroyer, um, point three. Um, Christ, the Bible is clear, he didn't just come to pay for sin. He did come to pay for sin, but he also came, get this, Jesus Christ came in the fullness of time to deliver us from the works of the devil. Um, Remember Genesis 3.15, how in the middle of the curse, God gives a promise and he says, I will put hatred between the woman and the serpent and between her offspring and his, and he will, um, he will crush your head, serpent, and you will crush his heel. Um, the promise there is that the, the Messiah, the deliverer to come, isn't just gonna take care of sin. He's going to crush the power of evil. He's going to destroy it. Um, 1 John 3, 8 says this. It's in the New Testament. It says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy, get this, the reason the Son of God appeared was what? To put a Band-Aid on our stuff. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. In a book um, called Who Is This Man Jesus, uh, a guy that was a medical doctor in the Congo for 35 years and loved the Lord and has passed on, Dan Fountain, he's talking about, he's talking about Jesus in the garden. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve of his crucifixion, God the Father, among other things, shows Jesus that the only way that we're gonna be saved is if he takes our sin upon himself. Doesn't, it's the cross. And not just dying an excruciating death pinned up to a tree, but actually, actually being a mediator, actually taking all the stuff, all the stuff that sin does to ravage us in our constitution, the way that it weds itself to the fabric of your being, the way that it makes you feel, the way that it brings you down, the way that it makes you behave and speak and think, Jesus, for all who will look to him, is going to become that. And he's going to bear the just wrath of God in the place of those who will look to him. And he gets the curtain pulled back by the father in that garden, and the father gives him a glimpse and says, it's the only way, and this is what you're gonna taste. And Dan Fountain, in his book, he, he kind of recreates that. And he says, there's a, John Mark is, is an onlooker, and he says, he's watching Jesus pray and, and receive this information from the Father and count the cost. And it says, as he returned, as Jesus returned to the middle of the garden for the third time, he moved more slowly and deliberately. He reached his arms to heaven and appeared to be grasping something, struggling with it, and pulling it to his chest. John Mark faintly heard him say in a hissing voice, spirit of hate, come here. I've got you now and I'm taking you with me. Same thing with the spirits of greed, spirit of pride, spirit of deception, spirit of lust. He's not pushing these things away. He's saying, come and I'm going to become you. I'm going to hang on the cross and pay for you and I'm going to kill you and I'm going to bury you. And when I rise, I'm gonna rise free of those things, not just for me, but for all those who look to me. 
I'm gonna break the power of death. I'm gonna, bra- I'm gonna crush the serpent's head. I'm going to solve the problem and start something completely new. And my resurrection is proof that it's been accepted by the Father. Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can what? Bear. The verb bear in the Hebrew there, it literally means to lift up or carry. Jesus bears, lifts up, and carries in his life our sin and our lawlessness and our rebellion. Cain was homeless. He was a fugitive. He was a wanderer. Jesus was rejected by men. And what did he say? Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. But the son of man, what? Has nowhere to lay his head. He chose to be. Chose to be. No one else in the history of the world chose to be homeless. That's not true. Some in his steps have. Jesus chose to be, to take on in his life, not just in his death, our curse. To be a wandering fugitive. Uh, driven by his, his own creation and rejected. But ultimately in his death. Um, Cain in Genesis 4.13 uh, uses the same verb that Isaiah uses when he prophesied of Jesus. He has, this is from Isaiah 53 of the Messiah. He has, Jesus has what? Born our griefs and carried our sorrows. Isaiah continued, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Um, Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Um, he became a curse for us to bury, to bear and to bury uh, the curse of creation, not just sin, but sin and our curse and our rebellion and all that which is mixed into creation, which make, makes it broken, he bore on the tree and then began in his resurrection something completely new. Hey, nothing else can solve our ills inside and in our culture in the world at large. No ism, no socialism, no capitalism, no perfect coffee, no perfect science, no sophistication of man, no humanism. One human who's also God, the God-man, who became a bridge for us to God, who took the brokenness of ourselves and of creation inside of himself on the cross. Only he, and this is what Genesis 4 shows us and casts ahead to, only he can solve our ills. Self-help won't do the trick. A shrink can help, but it's not gonna heal ultimately. But Jesus can, and he has come. Um, We have a sickness unto death, but Jesus took that death down to death and rose live. Um, So the other thing that I think that this shows us, the hope that it gives us sort of tying back into, as I close, into John Glenn's testimony, is that we have to be realistic too, and we can be. That Jesus has, he's come, he's given us his very self, he's taken care of the problem, but what? He has left us here, with his own spirit, not alone, but in the shadow lands before he returns and makes all things completely new. The new process has begun, but still we fight. Still we wrestle, still we struggle against sin, but with, with victory now, with a power, and, and the penalty has been paid for. There is no, if you're in Christ, there is no more guilt hanging over your head. It's been paid for, and you have the power of the Holy Spirit to fight now. But still we live in the shadow lands. We must persevere, we must be patient, um, And so we can progress, but there's not gonna be perfection until he comes again. And that's hope, that's a hopeful thing because there will be perfection, but not yet. But we fix our eyes on the one um, who came for us, who is perfect and who gives us perfection in God's eyes. And we rest in that, we rest in that. So a common class or skin color or culture or any other ideology or ism isn't what divides us ultimately, guys. Those things do, but they're surface issues. 
um, or unites us, but a common faith and a common faith in one man, Jesus Christ, is the only thing that's going to bring dividing walls down. That's it. There are only two races. We talk about all the races and all the classes and all the, that, those aren't ultimately what divide us. There are only two races, those who are in the first Adam, bound by the power of sin, and those who are identified by the second Adam, released from the power of sin. And we here on the second Adam are pleading with those who are lost in the first, come to Christ. He is, there, no other ideology or perfect science or perfect coffee or perfect craft is going to, those are nice, those can be good things, but they're not the ultimate answer. Um, Jesus Christ is. Um, and he, he is the only revolution that brings restoration, lasting restoration, and he's not gonna stop until everything's made new. So let's, let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Um, I thank you that you don't give us slapdash, easy answers. You give us the truth, and you give us your son, Jesus Christ, who took our brokenness and the brokenness of our world that we caused into himself, crucified it, buried it, and rose to something new. Lord, I pray that if there's any unbelief here, if there's any spirit of apathy, Lord, if there's any... Um, if there's anything that's fighting against the truth of uh, the gospel in Christ Jesus, Lord, if there's anyone who's outside of Christ, that they would come by faith um, today, and we just, we just say, Holy Spirit, come and do your work. Exalt the name of Jesus Christ and liberate us through no good of our own, through the, the good of Jesus Christ and his perfect sacrifice and resurrection, that we might be a people um, released, filled with joy and peace in the midst of our persevering and pa being patient and struggling and falling and getting back up, um, full of joy, full of peace, and full of love for you and one another, that the, uh, that the world around us might, might begin to change. Our environments, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, Lord God, make us a people who flee to you, who look to you, who love you and one another, and who love our neighbors as ourselves. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.